Uh, Gracious Father, your word, uh, you tell us, is living and active, that it's sharper than a double-edged sword, and we ask that it would do this morning in us what you've promised it would do, that it would convict us of sin, that it would change us, that it would equip us for lives of obedience to you. And we uh, pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want you to think for a second, uh, what would your ideal church look like? If you were you know, putting together a new church, starting from scratch, building it from the ground up, what would be the most important bits for you? Uh, maybe it would be your favourite preacher as the senior minister, and you know, the, the big name international conference speaker. Uh, maybe one of the biblical counselling guys like Paul Tripp could come and do pastoral care for you. Maybe it'd be uh, a really great band, all professional musicians. You know, when they're not playing at church on Sunday, they're on tour with a world-famous musician. Uh, If it was me, I'd pick the E Street Band. Maybe you'd get the baker's duck to cater morning tea every week. That'd be great, wouldn't it? Uh, What would the ideal church for you look like? You know, some of those examples, they're they're a bit silly, aren't they? But people leave churches over lesser things than those. We all have our our own personal preferences, our pet peeves when it comes to church. But as uh, you guys have been working through Philippians together over the last few weeks and months, I hope that you've seen that the Philippian church is the ideal New Testament church. See, if there was one church that Paul would point us all to and say, be like them, it's the church in Philippi. Uh, We can say that because Paul actually does that in other letters. Uh, He points to the Philippians, or he calls it the church in Macedonia, and he says, these guys are an example for you to imitate. And they are a model church for lots of different reasons. Reasons that actually have nothing to do with the skills of the preacher or the quality of the music, or how good the morning tea was. Paul says they are a model church, firstly because of their generosity. They had been generous partners with Paul in his ministry, even to the point of identifying with him in his his imprisonment. And this letter that he's writing to them is a response to a gift that they'd sent him while he was in prison. They were a model church because of their discipleship. They'd produced many godly, mature Christians whose lives were shaped by the attitude of Christ and whose priority was the gospel. People like Epaphroditus who brought the Philippians' gift to Paul. And they were a model church because of their endurance. They had endured suffering for the sake of the gospel and they had done it faithfully and joyfully. Paul says they're like a sacrificial offering that has been poured out to God. And now, as Paul writes his letter, he wants to encourage them to keep going. They've been made citizens of heaven through Christ. They've demonstrated demonstrated that in their generosity and in their discipleship and in their endurance. And now he wants them to keep living it out. That's what he says in the theme paragraph of this letter back in chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 27. If you've got your Bible open, have a look at what Paul writes in 1, verse 27. 
He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. So he wants them, in the face of opposition and suffering, to stand firm in the gospel, to be united in their way of thinking and to strive side by side as they proclaim the message of Jesus together. And in chapter 4, the passage that we're looking at today, Paul comes back around to that same encouragement. As he said in 127, so now he says, stand firm in the Lord. Have a look at verse 1. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. He longs for them to continue to proclaim the gospel, united together as they do it, in the face of suffering and opposition. And at the start of verse 1, the therefore, it points us back to all of those things that Paul has already said to encourage and ground the Philippians in the gospel. The humility and sacrifice of Christ, their confidence only in Him. And based on those wonderful truths that he's unpacked for them, Paul now lays out a series of exhortations to help the Philippians see practically what it looks like to stand firm, striving side by side for the sake of the gospel. That's what he's going to unpack through this chapter, how to stand firm in the Lord. And the first thing that Paul picks up is relationships. He says, we stand firm by having one mind in the Lord Jesus. And in particular, Paul has two actual women in the Philippian church in mind. See what he says there in verse 2? He says, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have laboured side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Uh, imagine for a second that you are Euodia, uh, you're excited to head along to church in Philippi that Sunday morning because you've heard that Epaphroditus has arrived back from Rome. Uh, he'd been sick, uh, close to death in fact, and so you're really excited to see him, uh, you've missed him and what's more, he's actually brought a letter with him from Paul. That's, that's a big deal, Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles, he's God's chosen messenger to take the message about Jesus to the nations and whatever Paul writes comes with the full authority of the Lord. And as the letter is read out in church and Paul talks about unity and humility, uh, you kind of nod along approvingly and actually you hope that Syntyche over there is listening, don't you? You've had lots of trouble with her, she really needs to listen to what Paul is saying. And then suddenly, as Paul gets to the practical application at the, the final chapter of his letter, he, pull, he calls out not only Syntyche, but he drops your name as well. And he says, to you, to sort out your differences and get on with the work of sharing the gospel. 
wouldn't you want the ground to open up and swallow you at that point? These are women who seem to be prominent members of the congregation. They'd previously laboured side by side with Paul in the Gospel. Their names, he says, are written in the Book of Life. These are genuine Christian sisters. But they've been consumed by whatever their disagreement is so that they're no longer being fruitful for the Gospel. They're no longer striving side by side with one mind. They might be in the same building on Sunday mornings but they're not on the same team and that's unacceptable. If Paul was writing to Eastgate, would he have written your name? Are your frustrations with someone, uh, your conflicts with someone, getting in the way of you striving side by side for the sake of the Gospel? Would Paul have written your name? And if he had, how would you have responded? There's the sinful response, isn't there? Uh, To get offended and to get angry. What would Paul know about the situation after all? He's in Rome, he doesn't know what's going on. Now, you might cut him off and refuse from that point to listen to anything that he has to say. We're not going to support him anymore. But that's the sinful response, isn't it? to refuse to listen to rebuke from a godly friend. The godly response, the one that's commended over and over in the Scriptures, the response of wisdom is to listen to rebuke, to see it as a kindness when people help us to see our sin and encourage us to put it to death, to be clothed instead with godly, Christ-like character. It's a painful kindness, isn't it? But it's a kindness nonetheless. Perhaps your other response might, to be, uh, might be to feel ashamed, uh, like it's all your fault. You don't belong in this fellowship anymore. How can you continue to preach the gospel of Jesus when you are so sinful yourself? Actually, now everyone for the rest of Christian history is going to know about your conflict. It's in the Bible. But wrapped in the rebuke is the grace of the Lord Jesus. Paul's calling them to repent. They're to rest in the grace of God, to let it lead them to reconciliation. And then, Paul says, they can get on with the work of the gospel rather than wallowing in guilt and shame. For Paul to call them out by name, it must have been a significant issue, mustn't it? And he uses strong language and appeal to them as his beloved, his joy and his crown. He loves these women. And see what Paul's priority is here? He doesn't take sides. He doesn't say one is right or the other is right. He doesn't even tell us what the issue is because for Paul it doesn't really matter. His priority, what he cares about, is that they would agree in the Lord. He actually uses the same words there as that theme paragraph in 127, he wants them to be of one mind in the Lord. Because unresolved disagreements between people and between groups within the church hurt the whole fellowship. They damage the relationships that Christ has called us to. 
and actually they damage our witness to the gospel in the rest of the world. They sap the energy of churches for evangelism, they undermine our credibility. How can we proclaim the gospel with integrity when our attitude is more like the enemies of the cross that Paul is battling against? Now, that's not to say at all that we should sweep all of our differences under the carpet. Uh, Paul's exhortation would have been very different if this was a matter of doctrinal importance. We see that in other letters, don't we, like Galatians. When the gospel is on the line, Paul doesn't hesitate to call out false teaching. It's actually important and it's right to divide over teaching that distorts or denies the gospel. But when it comes to personal matters, we're not to let our differences become disagreements. We're not to let conflicts fester and stink and go unresolved. Because when they do, they prevent us from being united in the gospel and striving side by side to make it known. So Paul says we're to lay aside personal preferences, we're to forgive sin, we're to seek reconciliation. We stand firm in the Lord by having one mind in Christ. Second, Paul tells us to stand firm by remembering, by remembering the peace of God. That's verses 4 to 9. These verses might seem a bit like a kind of random collection of commands, but there's a common theme that you see at the end of each paragraph. Uh, The peace of God in verse 7 and the God of peace in verse 9. It's the peace of God that will help us stand firm, rejoicing rather than being anxious. And the God of peace will help us stand firm as we fix our minds on what is worthy of our thought and our attention. See what Paul says in verse 4 there. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, when Paul's telling us to rejoice in the Lord always, uh, we shouldn't take that as a, you know, adopting a superficial attitude like that fake smile on your face. Uh, Paul himself is facing, facing suffering and facing opposition. He writes with tears, he tells us, because of those who are enemies of the gospel. It's not a glib attitude. And when Paul tells us uh, to let our reasonableness or better our gentleness be known, he's not saying we should all be doormats and let people walk all over us. When his command is not to be anxious, it doesn't mean that we'll never have an opportunity for fear or for worry or we should kind of have this zen-like disconnection with the world so that we're not affected by anything. Rather, he's saying that we can respond this way because of what God has done for us in the Lord Jesus. The ground of our rejoicing and our reasonableness and our prayerful dependence on God is that we have peace with him through the cross. See, it's through the cross 
that we're able to be put right with God. Uh, In the terms that Paul puts it in Philippians, we've been made citizens of heaven. No longer God's enemies because of our sin, we've been made his friends and made his children. Our relationship with him is secure because it's not based on our own efforts or our obedience. We can't work our way out of it or work our way into it. We are secure in Christ. And the peace with God that Paul talks about here, it's the objective reality that our sinful hostility to God has been dealt with, that we're now on good terms with Him. It's not a subjective feeling of peacefulness, because those kind of feelings come and go, don't they? They go on the tides of our circumstances and our emotions. But Paul says, the objective reality of having peace with God through the cross of the Lord Jesus will guard our hearts and our minds. It'll be like a soldier standing guard over our thoughts and our wills. And by dwelling on that truth, by meditating on that truth, it will shape our attitudes and our responses to the different circumstances in which we find ourselves. When we know that we've been saved and that even our death will turn out for our good because it means we'll be with Jesus... We can rejoice even when we suffer or are opposed. If you're tempted to grumble and complain when things don't go your way, this is an invitation to joyfulness instead. When we know that the Lord Jesus is near and we await his salvation from heaven, we can respond to people with gentleness and with reasonableness. If you feel like you need to get even when you've been wronged or like you need to walk all over people to make sure you get what you deserve, this is an invitation to Christ-like gentleness that puts others first. When we know that in Christ God is doing all things for our good and for Jesus' glory, we can take the things that we're worried about and bring them to him in prayer and thankfulness knowing that he hears us and has promised to provide for us. And so if you're tempted to fret and worry about work or finances or relationships or family, this is an invitation to remember that God is your Father, he loves you and he knows what you need even better than you do. Jesus has brought you peace with God and so you don't need to have minds filled with fear or worry or jealousy, those things distract us from striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Instead, as we stand firm, Paul says we'll be helped by setting our minds on the peace of God and on the values of heaven. See what he says in verse 8? Verse 8, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honourable, whatever is just... Whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. As people who have been made citizens of heaven, Paul says it's the values of heaven that should fill our minds. Uh, There's an old saying that goes, sow a thought and reap an action. 
Sow an act and you reap a habit. Sow a habit and you reap a character. Sow a character and you reap a destiny. It's saying that what we set our minds on ends up shaping not only our actions, but also who we become as people. Our very character is a reflection of what goes on in our heads. Which means, doesn't it, that what we fill our heads with is very important. That's so hard in our culture. I think it's actually much harder for us than it was for Paul and the Philippians. Because today we are bombarded with info from our news feeds and from texts and calls and emails, from TV and Spotify and podcasts. And all of it is designed to get our minds fixed on whatever we're being told, to the exclusion of everything else. Uh, The CEO of Netflix actually says that their biggest competitor isn't other streaming services, it's sleep. Because sleep forces you to turn your TV off and stop using their product. They want your attention, they want you to fill your mind with their product. If you did an audit on what filled your mind, where you focused your attention, what you took into your head, what would it look like? How much of it would just be rubbish, actually, compared to filling your mind with the values of heaven? The Bible wants us to consider that carefully, doesn't it? Because what we fill our minds with shapes us. And when Paul says here to think about things that are praiseworthy and excellent and pure and lovely, he's not just saying think nice thoughts. Uh, Paul himself has actually given the Philippians an example of what they should be setting their minds on. He says it's in his teaching and the way he lives his life. All that is honourable and just and pure and lovely is what they've heard and received from him. And what does Paul set his mind on? Well, I think over and over through this letter, we see that what drives Paul, what is his supreme concern, what he sets his mind on is the gospel, isn't it? Where is your mind? Now, if this is how Paul says we stand firm in the gospel, isn't it worth taking the time to map out how you will fill your mind with these virtues and allow them to shape you? What could you do? Uh, You could commit to uh, making it to church and your Bible study every week, no matter what you've got on. Perhaps you could set a notification in your phone so that the first thing you do every morning is not scroll through Facebook, it's to start the day with the Bible. Maybe you could plan to read a Christian classic every term. Now, grow your understanding in important biblical doctrines to fill your mind with the gospel. Once a term, that's only four books a year. It's a pretty low bar. Maybe you could start by using a paper Bible rather than your phone. You don't get notifications from a paper Bible, do you? Have a screen-free Sabbath every week. Switch off from the the bombardment of info from your screens and focus your mind on thankfulness to God. What we put into our heads will shape whether we become people who live like citizens of heaven or not. Rejoicing in trials, 
gentle in opposition, prayerful in the face of anxiety, united in one mind as we strive side by side for the sake of the gospel. Deliberately taking the time to fill our minds with the gospel, reading the scriptures, thinking about them, praying about them, turning them over in your minds, that's what will help us stand firm in the gospel. And finally, Paul gives us an example of how setting his mind on heavenly values has played out in his circumstances. Now, this is what he's called the Philippians to do in the things that they've seen him enact. The practical way uh, he sets an example of standing firm in the Lord is by being content. See what he says in verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. And not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Uh, Paul has encouraged the Philippians to rejoice in all circumstances and now he says that the gift that they've sent to him has given him reason to rejoice as well. Uh, The Philippians had been generous in their support of Paul, they'd helped meet his needs while he's in prison and they'd even sent Epaphroditus to be with him and minister to him in, in his imprisonment. And Paul is clearly moved by their generosity. It's an expression of their love and their concern for him which they previously hadn't had an opportunity to express. But he says this isn't just a gift to him personally, it's also an expression of their partnership in the gospel, which is what Paul values above everything else. And yet even this, for Paul, is an opportunity to learn from his example. He's encouraged the Philippians to be content in all circumstances rather than anxious, to entrust their needs and their fears to God. And Paul says, look at me, here's an example of what that looks like. In his ministry, he says, he's faced situations of abundance and situations of need. He's gone to bed many times with his tummy still rumbling, but he's also experienced time where he's gone to sleep full and content. He's been brought low as people he thought were friends and partners in the gospel have abandoned him and left the faith. On top of that, he's faced opposition from outside the church, but also he's faced great highs as he preaches the gospel, as he sees people coming to Jesus in repentance and faith, as he sees the churches he's planted growing and maturing, even though he's absent. He's experienced the full range of situations and emotions. And in all those circumstances, he says he's learned the secret of being content. It's something he's had to learn, do you notice? It's not something that happens magically or automatically. He's had to work hard at it in each of those situations. And he's learned it by being strengthened in Christ. Verse 13, it's, it's not a verse about being able to achieve your dreams because you're on Team Jesus. It's about being content even when you have nothing because you know that you have Christ and he can never be taken away from you. It's about still having your security and your confidence in him 
even when you're strong and powerful and you've got money, all of those things that we're tempted to put our confidence in rather than in Jesus. Paul's contentment comes from his dependence on the Lord, since he knows that in whatever situation he faces, Jesus will provide him with the strength and the resources he needs to endure and to glorify God in his endurance. And no matter what persecution or suffering he faces, he knows that his salvation is secure in Jesus and he'll be delivered on the last day. The fruit of Paul's contentment is then the way that he's able to pour himself out for the sake of others in imitation of Jesus. Everything he does is for the benefit of the people he's shared the gospel with, not for himself. He can even say that if he's poured out as a drink offering, as kind of the cherry on top of the Philippians' faithful service, he will be glad and he'll rejoice in that. Paul says he's an example to imitate. And so how are you going at imitating Paul's example? What would it look like for you to be content in all circumstances and so give yourself to the work of the Lord? Would you work fewer hours, even if it meant you earned less money, to volunteer one day a week teaching RI in schools? Would you consider leaving Toowoomba and the comforts that, it, that you have in living in a large town and taking a job out west to serve a small and under-resourced church? For the Philippians, the way that they express their contentment and their trust in Jesus is through their financial support of Paul's ministry. They are exemplary in the way that they contribute to Paul's ministry so that he can go and share the gospel in other places. He even tells the Corinthians that the Philippian church gives beyond their means. They gave more money than they could actually afford because they think the gospel is so important. See how they partnered with him in verse 14. He says, Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I've received full payment and more. I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. I see Paul using that partnership language again. Right from the time that he left Macedonia, uh, or he left them to go to Macedonia rather, uh, they partnered with him in his ministry. And they do it financially. And they do it by sending Epaphroditus to stay with Paul while he's in prison. Paul says they even shared in his suffering. When he suffered, they were grieved and they suffered alongside him. And it's not just an expression of their care for Paul personally, it's that they see themselves as partners in his ministry. They were partners with him in sharing the gospel. Now, even if they're not the ones who are on the front line speaking the words as Paul preached, 
They were partners by making sure he had enough money to keep doing it. They made sure that they were praying for him, that he would speak clearly and that people would respond. They're partners in his ministry. And Paul makes clear that the thing he's interested in isn't their money because he can be content in whatever situation he's in, even when he's got nothing. What he cares about is the fruit that increase to their credit. As they share in Paul's ministry, as they participate in its fruitfulness, they're storing up treasures for themselves in heaven. Their joy in the gospel directs what they do with their money, uh, with their time, with their prayers, with their resources. They are imitating Paul in his gospel-shaped priorities. And doing something like that, Paul says, is an offering of thanks to God for his grace to us in Christ Jesus. An expression of trust and contentment in him as the one who supplies everything that we need. That is a mindset that is deeply pleasing to God. And so it's a fitting note that with that, Paul brings his letter to a close. It's that mindset that means Paul is willing to hold the Philippians up as a model church for us to imitate. Paul is full of joy because already they're living the sorts of lives that he's encouraged them to, living out their citizenship in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, standing firm with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And Paul's prayer is that they'll do that more and more as they fill their minds with what is excellent and praiseworthy, as they fill their minds with Christ and adopt his mindset. And all of this is to the praise and to the glory of God, our Father, the one who has graciously saved us and richly supplies us with everything we need to live as his people. How about we pray for ourselves uh, that God will be glorified in us just like he was in the Philippian church? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your grace to us in Jesus. Thanks that we have peace with you, that even though we were your enemies, you have made us your children. And help us always to remember the peace we have with you and help us stand firm in it. Help it to fill our minds Help it to shape our relationships as we strive side by side for the sake of the gospel and let it fill us with contentment so that we can rejoice in any circumstance because we know we have Jesus. Father, we ask that he would be glorified in us and we pray in his name. Amen.